ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's a very familiar place, the supermarket. You're probably in it every week, most likely in one of the two biggies, Woolworths or Coles. Together, they control about two-thirds of the market. As you'll be aware, they're being criticised for price gouging. So, charging their customers, you and me, a lot, at the same time as squeezing their suppliers, especially farmers. There's going to be a Senate inquiry, as well as a state inquiry in Queensland. And the ACCC will spend a year looking at supermarket prices. But this is all a bit of a turn-up, because mostly we like them. Look, one of the things we have to remember is that Woolworths was, for 2023, Australia's most trusted brand. Coles was second. Michelle Levine is chief executive of market research firm Roy Morgan. Although that's coming off the boil now, we basically like our supermarkets. And I think what we're seeing now is a little disappointment or a lot of disappointment as the cost of living pressures kick in. Why were they, why have we held them in such high esteem? Why do we normally think of them so well? Look, I guess we normally think of them so well because it's just a nice place that we go. We're very comfortable there. But the reality is during COVID, two and a half to three years of COVID, the supermarkets were an absolute lifeline for us and they really stepped up. I mean, if you think about Woolworths and Coles and the amount of extra support that they gave people, they went online really quickly. They were delivering goods. They were masking up all of their workers and those people that were there providing goods and services when we were barely ready to go out, they really went the extra mile. And you could just see that they were an absolute absolute lifeline. And as a result of that, Roy Morgan's trust research just showed that Australians trusted them more and more and more. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. And today, supermarkets. At the moment, they're a bit on the nose, which is why the politicians are holding inquiries. And the big two have gone from most trusted to increasingly distrusted. What the data shows is really it is now about affordability, um, you know, prices and the idea that people might be price gouging or that the supermarkets might be price gouging. And also the juxtaposition of cost of living concerns for Australians and really large profit announcements. So people are sort of feeling, well, how can they be announcing these major profits when Australians are struggling? So those are the two things coming through in the data. And you'd have to say there's kind of like a feeding frenzy going on really with politicians and pundits using words like price gouging and massive profits. So there's a big bandwagon that people seem to be jumping on that are having a go at the supermarkets at the moment. And part of the reason for that is that there's more than one story here. It's not only cost of living pressures at a time of high profits. Even in really good times, even when the supermarkets were, um, you know, most trusted brands, there's still an inkling about concern about the way that suppliers are treated. You know, the primary producers, the farmers we talk about, but any kinds of suppliers. And the major supermarkets in particular are very well aware that they walk a fine line between keeping prices down 
for customers and because of the competitive nature of the industry that they're in, but also not pushing suppliers too hard. But gosh, it must be a fine line. And I think the feeling is always from the Australian people that they see that it's a bit of a tight wrangle. And as we speak, it's not one of the biggest issues creating distrust with supermarkets, but it's definitely there. It's there enough for the federal government to ask economist and former minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments, Craig Emerson, to hold a review. The review itself is about what's called the Grocery Code of Conduct, and that sets out the relationship between the supermarkets and the suppliers of food, in particular, to those supermarkets. Now, you've got consumers on the one hand who are feeling the pinch from a rising cost of living and farmers on the other hand saying, well, they're not getting a fair price for their products. And we've seen this with meat in particular. People are talking about this. And as Michelle Levine mentions, pundits and politicians have been talking a lot. But most of them aren't looking at the numbers. So how justified are the concerns about price gouging? We don't think they are very justified, to, to be honest. Tom Kirith's a retail analyst with Baron Joey. Supermarket prices in Australia since kind of the start of 2020 are up about 22%. If you compare that to other markets around the world, other developed countries, the US, uh, Europe, UK, etc., they're up quite a lot more than that. So that's kind of, I guess, one basis to say, well, actually the Aussie supermarkets have been pretty rational with their with their pricing. Another way to look at it is to look at just what the profit growth has been for Coles and Woolworths. And for Woolworths, the profits are up about 40% on pre-COVID levels. Coles are up about 20%. The suppliers to Coles and Woolworths, their profits are up 50%. Aldi's profits, we think, are up about 100%. So again, looking at it from that lens, it doesn't look like Coles and Woolworths have been kind of profiteering. And I guess the last way to look at it is just margins. Um, and there's obviously a lot of focus on margins in Australia and they're, they're quite high and they always kind of have been. And the margins have gone up in the last few years, um, but there's a few reasons for that. So firstly, they've invested quite a lot in their business through their supply chain and digital initiatives, which has helped enhance their margin. There's been some accounting changes, which we understand, and that, that's a reason for margin improvement. And the last one is that tobacco, which is a quite a low margin product, has declined as a portion of the sales, which, which actually inflates the reported margin. So we kind of step back and look at all these kind of measures. And I actually think that the retailers have been pretty responsible with their pricing and their behaviour in general, you know, since, since the start of the pandemic, you know, when it was, you know, four years ago now. We spent $48 billion at Woolworths last financial year and $37 billion in Coles. These are big turnovers. But compared to other industries, they're not high-margin businesses. I mean, operating margins for Coles and Woolworths have ranged from kind of 4 to 9%, I think, for the last 20 or 25 years. So, for, you know, for every $100 you spend, that they make between 4 and $9, which is, which is pretty modest. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is that very capital intensive, costs a lot of money to build supermarkets and distribution centres and, and now increasingly got to build digital properties that support the the sales and the, and the businesses. So, you know, for that reason, the margins tend to be quite low in, in a relative basis. But they are often better here than they are in, in other countries we might compare ourselves to. Absolutely. Retailers in the UK might make a 2 or 3% operating margin. In the US, it might be, you know, 3 or 4 
And look, there are a few reasons for that. Most, we cover a bunch of different retail segments and and just about every single retail segment, an Aussie retailer will generate a higher margin than their offshore peer, whether it be in consumer electronics, apparel, whatever it is, home improvement. And I think the simple reason is that the market construct here is a lot more favourable um, and you've got a lot faster population growth and income growth in Australia than you do in other markets. One of the characteristics of our market is that it's less competitive. Audi has about 10%, but it's dominated by Woolworths and Coles. Neil Reckland's a partner at the retail consultancy NextGen Group. Many of his clients are suppliers to the two giants. When you have two retailers in the branded grocery space that represent 80% plus of branded grocery sales and or kind of fruit and veg sales, there's inevitably a power imbalance between uh, the two retailers that are, for the majority of suppliers, the largest part of their business and that supplier, which will inevitably be a fraction of the size of those retail partners. Home, grown, fields, sown. South, east, out west, fresh Aussie fruit and veg, the best. Picking Australian fruit and veg first. That's today's fresh food people. So when we see the ads on telly for for the supermarkets and the the representatives of the supermarket are, you know, kind of about to get on the trawler and and they're they're dancing in the fields with the farmers, How, how close to reality is that, Neil? Uh, I think it's important not to confuse uh, marketing with reality there. And let's be clear, there is a lot of marketing around, um, obviously, you know, people wanting to be focusing on on fresh and primary producers and beef farmers and uh, fishermen and the like. The reality typically doesn't reflect that. Um, and, and that's marketing and that's the marketing's job. The relationship between particularly primary producers and the retailers is typically a pretty challenging one. And we're certainly seeing that uh, in the market right now with uh, a lot of uh, media around the prices that farmers are able to generate for their crops versus the uh, retail prices that the retailers are, are demanding in store. The contact point for the supplier and the supermarket is the buyer or category manager. It's a full-on job. They have to meet targets on sales, share of market, margin and availability of product. And these targets are measured on a weekly, sometimes a daily basis. It is relentless. Uh, And if you have a good quarter, the only thing that uh, is really coming at you is you've got to lap that next quarter or next year. So um, it's a tough job, long hours and with incredibly challenging um, commercial objectives. And typically you have to lap those. So uh, 2023 saw retailers do very well. 24, they're going to have to do better. Better margins, more investment, more spend, more of the available stock, whatever the particular metric might be. And that is an absolutely relentless pressure that the buyers are under. So how does that pressure play out, Neil? Say I'm a new supplier, how does it go? Well, I'll potentially come and visit you and uh, or you may have, have emailed me saying, look, I can provide you with this product. Um, there'll be a bunch of criteria around quality and availability, et cetera, et cetera, and then we'll negotiate the price that will be paid for those goods. And those negotiations are pretty full on, mostly, and the expectation will be that uh, it, it is the best possible price in the market that the buyer will attain for those products. Just on that, I'm a, I'm a supplier, I'm a grower. I, don't, I probably don't have a lot of training in negotiation. Whereas the people I'm negotiating with, they probably do. Oh, they do that every single day of the week. They're experts and you're an expert in the uh, phosphate content of the soil or whatever it might be. And you are expected to go into that negotiation and manage that and obtain a good result. So um, there is an inevitably an imbalance in both power and skill. 
So the supplier starts with a real disadvantage. The buyer's an expert negotiator, the supplier's not. The supermarket's probably the supplier's biggest customer, whereas the supplier is just one of many. It's very asymmetrical. Lucy Gregg works for Ausveg, the peak industry body for vegetable growers. The growers enter what what we tend to call supply agreements with the retailers. Um, those agreements aren't contracts and they vary. Um, sometimes they're for three months or six months, sometimes a year. Uh, those supply agreements outline the volume of product to be delivered to the retailers' distribution centres typically on a weekly basis. So based on those forecasts, noting that it's a forecast, the grower will go and plant their crop. So when the week for going into the retailer is scheduled, they have that amount of crop uh, ready to harvest. So hang on, you, you said something really interesting. These are not contracts. No, they're not contracts. They're just supply agreements. And once again, the volumes are typically what they would call forecast volumes. So there's no contractual obligation from the retailer. The other thing, of course, is unfair contract law does not apply. If you don't have a contract, then there's no unfair contract law. That's quite true. And also noting that these supply agreements typically uh, don't include price either. Wait, what? Typically what happens in in the scenario is that at the scheduled week, the grower will send through to the retailer uh, the volumes that they have available, which typically reflect the supply agreement, and they will also put a price in there. And then it is up to the retailer, normally the day later, will come back to the grower with... Well, they'll either accept the price, but typically they will come back to the grower with another price, citing market conditions, uh, what other growers are quoting, etc. But the the price um, is not what the grower has quoted, but typically a lower price. So I say a price, you're the buyer, you say, well, it's not going to be that much, Richard. There's a stalemate. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically a Dutch auction to some extent because obviously all the suppliers of the purple pumpkins will put in their volumes and their price. And so the the retail has the opportunity to look at, you know, I've got 10 quotes here um, for volume and price and which one will I have? Do I need all of them? The retailer has the power in that relationship and there's no transparency on where that price comes from how it's calculated, and are you comparing like for like? But the grower has no transparency in that. A couple of things here. Lucy's example, purple pumpkins, don't exist. They're a fictitious vegetable because growers of real vegetables would be concerned if they felt she was talking about them. Nobody wants to fall out with the buyers. And that's because at this point, the growers spent all the money and taken all the risk. They have a crop that's ready to go, which has to be harvested now if it's going to meet strict requirements on size and appearance. And next week, another crop has to be harvested and on it goes. So they can write off the crop or take the offer. Lucy, if they do accept it, is that it? Are we done? Uh, not necessarily. So th- so then we have all sorts of other behaviours of... Um, cancelling orders. They'll often cite that, you know, they've got too much stock or they haven't moved the stock. Um, And sometimes that can create all sorts of issues because growers have actually packed the orders in a generic supermarket bag. So they're often branded with the retailer's brand. So they often have no other options um, to dump it. 
as a packed good and they've gone to all that cost of harvest and packing um, or they can um, maybe give it to a to a food charity or depending on whether it's packed or not they may be able to put product into the wholesale market but there are problems with that most vegetables go straight to supermarkets the wholesale market is actually smaller the volumes are lower the market share is lower um, so therefore there's um, you know often not as much opportunity uh, and uh, typically the prices can be lower in in the wholesale market which sometimes happens particularly when there's an oversupply and we have growers say that um, in an oversupply circumstance the retailers will actually ring up and say well your products in the wholesale market for X so therefore that's what we want to pay you but the only reason it's in there, because an oversupply's condition has been created. So hang on, I want to be clear on this. The, the supermarket has said, well, we can't take all that product for one reason or another. What you do with it is up to you. The grower then puts it in the wholesale market, but it can't get the same price. And then the, the supermarket then says, well, hang on, your product's going at this price in the wholesale market, so we want all of it at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's that. We have certainly had growers call us with that example. Yes. This is the money. I'm Richard Aidy. Today we're looking at supermarkets, particularly the relationship between them and their suppliers. I should say that we did ask Woolworths and Coles to come on today and both declined. You've just been hearing how asymmetric the negotiations are between vegetable grower and supermarket buyer. But supplying the product for the agreed price is not the end of it. Neil Recklin. Any retailer will have a, a toolkit, as you as you say, of many things that a supplier can choose to invest in. That might be promotion. So when you walk into store and see something on special or a gondola end, so those front of store displays, mm -hmm. um, that's paid for by suppliers um, mostly. Um, if you see uh, tickets on shelf, that's paid for by suppliers. Hear something on the radio in store, the you know the kind of the retailer's dedicated radio channel, that's paid for, and so on and so forth. All those things are are funded in part or in full. By suppliers. Is there ever pressure to say, well, look, you perhaps need to understand our customers better, um, but you can buy our data, and so then you can? Yes, both retailers offer their, their data for suppliers to be able to buy to get a better understanding of how shoppers uh, operate in store and what they buy and how they buy and how often they buy, etc., etc. So there are a lot of very rich data sources that the retailers offer, and um, obviously the suppliers are expected to pay for that. Yes, that's correct. And marketing as well? Is that on top? Yes, of course. Okay. All right. <laughs> a good buyer never runs out of a shopping list of things to sell, that's for sure. So as a supplier, I can manage this for a bit and we get to six months. We've been doing it for half a year. Well, obviously, we now need to lap ourselves. So if we had a good first half, um, my expectation is that the second half will obviously be better. And um, Richard, I, I think it's appropriate that we look at uh, what incremental promotions we can run and whether we're going to do some extra marketing. And um, if you you know, want to bring some new products to market, then we'll have those conversations. Um, I'm obviously keen to find ways of working with you for you to increase your investment in my store, Richard. Right. So, so you want more money from me. Say, though, I feel a bit like I've been giving blood every day for a week and I, I just feel I don't have it in me to come to the party on more on marketing or anything like that. Well, that's really disappointing to hear, Richard, that you're not seeking to continue investing in my business. 
Triple smoked ham. Who came up with that? Wasn't them, or her, or even him. That's the best Christmas ham I've ever had. Now, when a supermarket uses its power in negotiations with a grower, is that a breach of the food and grocery code? No, not necessarily. You can have a completely fair uh, grocery code compliant discussion and negotiation with an asymmetry in that power, no issue at all. And, and sometimes the perception of what a supplier sees and hears might be quite different to what a retailer intends or says. And often, if you're the small, the small player in the room, it's very easy to feel intimidated or to feel under pressure when perhaps it wasn't even the intent of the retailer to project that position. That doesn't change the reality, yes. however, that you feel pretty scared in that environment. So is it possible, as a supplier, to feel you've had the shit kicked out of you without there being a breach of the code? Oh, for sure. I know that occurs regularly. A retailer will be putting pressure on a supplier to do X, Y, Z, and the supplier will feel like if they were to say no, there could be a negative consequence. The retailer may never say there's a negative consequence, but that doesn't necessarily remove the thought or the feeling by the supplier that if they say no, things could go very bad for them. Yeah, join the dots. And that, that drives often the behaviour by the supplier to comply with requests or behaviours that we as an independent would suggest are not necessarily appropriate. In fact, Neil and his colleagues hear about what appears to be a breach of the code almost every week. But how many suppliers actually make a complaint? Uh, very, very few. And certainly, uh, you know, the independent arbiter, Chris Leptos, uh, recently published his report. And you know, again, we had uh, zero complaints in the industry, uh, which would suggest one of two things. Either there are no issues in the industry, hence zero complaints, or the suppliers don't wish to complain for whatever reason. And and I strongly believe it's the latter. So certainly from the conversations we, we get exposed to from suppliers, very few, if any, proceed to a formal complaint. And they certainly don't go through the, uh, the frameworks available under grocery code with external um, independent arbiters. If people did complain, what are the potential sanctions under the code? If you were to take it to the uh, ultimately to court, uh, I believe the maximum penalty is sixty-four thousand uh, dollars for a retailer of breach of the code, which is a is a rounding error for the retailers. Mm. The independent arbiters have the ability to award damages to a supplier. If a supplier were to complain to the arbiter, and the arbiter were to investigate, and the arbiter were to find in favour of the supplier, they could award damages to the supplier for a breach of the code, and that could be a you know a million or two or three. But nobody's done it. But nobody's done that. So, and there has been no official complaint in that regard, or very few. There have been a few inquiries, but but no no major complaint as such. If one was a sceptical person, one might think nobody's done it because people are working out that it's just not worth it, that it's better to cop this <clears throat> deal that they're not thrilled with and survive a bit longer than make a complaint and know you're going to die. And that's kind of the harsh reality. Um, I might win, win the battle, but I'm going to lose the war is, is the mindset of many, many suppliers. I'm not going to take the risk of winning a particular fight over a price point or whether a product is taken out of distribution because I have a, a, a longer runway that I need to consider in doing business with the retailers. As you heard earlier, former Minister for Competition Craig Emerson is examining the Food and Grocery Code at the moment. What changes would peak body Ausveg like to see? We'd certainly like to see the Food and Grocery Code become mandatory for all retailers, but we also would like to see the um, code amended 
to improve the relevance and effectiveness for fresh produce. So noticing that for engrossed codes for all groceries, but the fresh produce industry is particularly unique and the code's not overly responsive. Dispute resolution, um, the fresh produce industry would like to see some amendments to make sure that dispute resolutions are um, done in a more timely manner. The other thing that we'd like to see is that the code arbiters are independent of the retailers. So at the moment, the retailers appoint a code arbiter. So if the grower has a problem, they can actually go to that um, arbiter and say, look, we feel as though we were treated unfairly. But the growers have no faith in that system. They fear retribution as some call it, commercial suicide, that that's what they fear. So uh, so it's not worth complaining, basically. Yeah, they, they won't complain. Osvidge would also like there to be more of a role for the ACCC. We'd once again like to see the ability to look at those supply agreements, um, some of those relationships, some of the behaviours that retailers um, undertake uh, that put the growers on a back foot. So we would certainly like to see um, greater powers for the ACCC. Neil Reckland says that in both New Zealand and the UK, the grocery code regulator can impose fines of up to 3% of turnover. There's a small office in the UK, so there's a, a lead uh, with some support resources. Uh, New Zealand is a completely different kettle of fish. They currently have 26 full-time individuals who've been appointed to monitor the grocery code. Bearing in mind that was only launched uh, in September last mm. year, so we've yet to see what that means and how that's going to play out. But certainly that kind of investment, um, my understanding is just shy of $30 million worth of, uh, of investment in people, is clearly going to uh, um, set a, uh, an agenda in the way that the, the code is policed in New Zealand, for sure. So both of those countries have taken a carrying a bit more of a stick approach. Absolutely. Well, we don't know yet in New Zealand. What, what can we say about the UK? Uh, the UK approach to the code has been, I have a stick, so listen to me, and the retailers see the stick and generally listen. So the adjudicator in the UK has understood issues, spoken with the retailers, recommended changes to practices and behaviours, and the retailers, as far as I'm aware, have pretty much in every instance adopted those recommendations and made changes right. and apologised. So there have been no major fines in the UK, but there's been very significant process and behaviour change as a result of having that stick. What about the ACCC, Neil? Do you want it to have more power? My personal preference is for a mandated code, um, as that then opens the ability uh, through a different legal framework to have fining ability. If that were to mirror the UK and New Zealand 3% of annual turnover... That's a big number. Mm. That's a mighty big stick. Uh, and then if you if you uh, accompany that with the appropriate resources to monitor, manage, police the code, then that would potentially lead to quite significant behaviour change. There needs to inevitably be greater visibility, particularly in the primary produce place or the, that marketplace. So farmers, growers um, are undoubtedly uh, under the most pressure currently in, in, in this marketplace from retailers. And uh, if we leave it another year or two, um, that's going to be catastrophic in my opinion. Meanwhile, further up the chain, the consumer, the supermarket customer, isn't unhappy enough with Coles or Woolworths prices to walk away. Retail analyst Tom Kirith. If they felt that prices were too high... They wouldn't shop there and that, that, you know, they would shop elsewhere. And, and we're not really seeing that. We're not really seeing a huge shift toward, toward Aldi or the independents. So I feel like, I feel like, and they're actually, consumers are actually spending more and more money eating out of the home, 
which is interesting because if they're feeling the pinch, then you'd think that they would spend more money at a supermarket where it's obviously a lot cheaper than eating out of the home. But that's one of the things we've been really surprised by. Um, that's just that the resilience of the consumer and and their kind of, I guess, lack of willingness to trade in that restaurant meal or eating out meal back for a um, you know, something prepared at a supermarket. And Michelle Levine says there's something else that will work for the big supermarkets. We want to trust them. We would prefer to trust the people that we deal with. I mean, we'd absolutely prefer to trust the supermarkets that we deal with. We prefer to trust the banks that we deal with. We feel really uncomfortable when we have to deal with an organisation that we don't trust. And, you know, we've seen the result with, say, Qantas, which became from, you know, one of the most trusted brands to one of the most distrusted brands. I mean, essentially, people don't want to go through life feeling like they might be ripped off at every at every point or their data might be abused or whatever. We want to feel comfortable. Michelle Levine from Roy Morgan. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Kate McDonald. Our sound engineer is Beth Stewart. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.